Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. What's up? <laughs> this is my bad dad look. Do you like it? Hey, man, looking good, right? This isn't going to work, though, because I can't see anybody. You hold on to those for me. There we go. And I still can't see anybody, so I'm going to put these on. Welcome to church. How are you all going? Fantastic. It's so good to see you all again. I uh, know it's been a while. I've been on the road for the last three weeks, but it's good to be home and wonderful to be with you all. And uh, I'm really excited about kicking off this brand new series, Bad Boys of the Bible. If I knew we were going with the Dirty Mo theme, I would have grown one for this series, but it takes me about four years to grow Mo. I have not been blessed with the gift of facial hair quite like our brother Peter has. So I don't know if that makes me less of a man than not. I don't know, whatever. But regardless of whether you can grow facial hair or not, you're welcome here. Whether you like uh, white sneakers or Dr. Martin boots or high heels, uh, whoever you are and however you like to dress, great to have you here this morning and really looking forward to this series in which we're going to explore some life lessons from some of the more colorful characters in the Bible. And so it's going to be an enjoyable series and hopefully a deeply helpful one as well. Now, I remember the very first time that I had to do this. And by this, I mean stand up in front of a large crowd of people and speak and, and, and preach. Uh, it was back in the early 1990s. I was just 19 years of age, and I had been appointed as the interim volunteer youth pastor at the church that I was a part of. Uh, our youth pastor had resigned rather suddenly, and because I was involved in the volunteer leadership team, they kind of tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to just hold things together for a while until they can appoint a new youth pastor. So I said, I'd be happy to do that. And it just so happened that during that period of leadership, our youth were scheduled to do a youth takeover service, kind of like what we did here three weeks ago at The Rocks. And uh, how it worked was when the youth took over the service, the youth pastor preached, and so I kind of got given the Guernsey. And I remember uh, it was a Sunday night, 6 p.m. Uh, there was about six, 700 people in the auditorium. I was sitting down on the front row getting ready to preach. And I was absolutely terrified. Like I was beside myself with nervousness, right? I was just so overwhelmed by it. And, and yet somewhere deep inside of myself, like I knew that this was part of what God was going to call me to do and what it was that he required me to be. And so I honestly can't remember how it went. It's all a blur. I can't tell you what I preached on. I, I'm not sure if anybody understood it or if it made sense, but I'm assuming it went okay because in the end, they ended up appointing me as the part-time youth pastor and then eventually the full-time youth pastor. And that kind of kick-started my journey into ministry. And so who knows, maybe God had a plan. But I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that where you feel like God is tapping you on the shoulder and asking you to do something you do not want to do or feel that you can do. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like God is calling you to say something or do something or go somewhere that you either don't feel like you can or don't feel like you want to? I reckon it's almost inevitable that if you are a follower of Jesus at some point in your journey of life and faith, God is gonna call on you to do something you don't feel qualified to do. He's going to ask you to do something that you feel is outside of the scope of your capacity or your willingness. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you've had an encounter like that, you know how overwhelming it can be, how daunting it can be when God asks you to do something like that. Now, it doesn't have to be something big and significant. It could just be God asking you to initiate a reconciliation in a relationship that's gone bad by maybe saying sorry or extending forgiveness to somebody who's hurt you or offended you. 
Um, it could be God asking you to step up and do something radical in, in, in giving something maybe you don't feel you're able or ready to give. Maybe demonstrating some kind of sacrificial generosity by giving to a particular organization or the church or a friend in need or a missionary on the field, whatever the case may be. Or perhaps it might be something more dramatic, like getting you to pack up your family and quit your job and move to the other side of the world to take on an opportunity that God has opened up for you to advance His kingdom in some kind of unique way. Well, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you know how daunting and challenging it can be. And back in the Old Testament, we meet a brilliant young guy by the name of Gideon who found himself in a situation just like that. Now, Gideon's whole life story plays out over several chapters in the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges chapter 6 all the way through to the end of Judges chapter 8. And the first 10 verses of Judges chapter 6 kind of set the stage. They give us the backdrop to Gideon's life and story. And to be honest with you, it's a pretty bleak one. When, when, the, when the opening scene um, comes uh, to the fore, we, we see Israel as a nation uh, in a pretty desperate and dark situation. They have given themselves over to idolatry and apostasy. They are worshiping the foreign gods of the Canaanite nations surrounding them. They've abandoned their devotion to Yahweh, their God. And as a result, God has allowed them to be overrun by their enemies, the Midianites. And the Midianites were a particularly cruel kind of people. And for a period of about seven years, they oppressed and harassed and enslaved and impoverished the people of Israel. And so Israel are living in fear. So much so that some of them have abandoned their homes and their villages and they've retreated into the hills. They're literally living in the caves to escape the Midianites. And it's against this backdrop of dark and desperate circumstance that we meet our friend Gideon. So let's pick up the story and we'll start in Judges chapter 6, reading from verse 11. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, for I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Now, can we just hit pause here for a moment? Can I just say, I, I love the story of Gideon for so many reasons. And the honest truth is we could do an entire series on this guy's life and story. But what I love most about the story of Gideon is that Gideon is such an unlikely hero, right? When the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, God has chosen you and selected you to defeat the Midianites and to liberate Israel from their oppression. Gideon's immediate response is to say, God, I think you've got the wrong person. Like, I think the person you're looking for is like down the road and four wine presses to the left. It can't possibly be me. Right? I am the least in my family. 
and my family is the least in our tribe, and our tribe is the least in the nation. You have got to have the wrong person. But of course, God did not have the wrong person. God knew exactly what he was doing. God doesn't make mistakes like that. And I love that because it's such a profound reminder that often the people God chooses to use are not the people we would assume God chooses to use. In fact, right throughout the biblical record, we see God using the weak and the doubtful and the fearful and the underestimated and the overlooked and the underappreciated, the people who are on the edges, the fringe dwellers, the marginalized, those who for whatever reason would not ordinarily find themselves like in the finals of Israel's Got Talent, right? God chooses the weak to confound the wise, Paul said. God chooses those that we often overlook through whom to work his mighty works. And so it's a powerful reminder to us that God loves us for who we are, but he sees us for who we are destined to be. God loves you exactly the way you are, but he sees all the potential in your life, all that he could do in and through your life if you were willing to say yes to all that he asks of you and all that he has for you. And I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's worth saying, at the end of the day, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. The truth of the matter is, your capacity will always be significantly less than your calling. But God will grow your capacity through the pursuit of your calling. So don't ever allow the, the lack of capacity in your life to discourage you or dissuade you from saying yes to whatever it is God is asking you to do. Because if you are willing, He will make you able. And so you might be sitting there this morning saying, Tim, I really love the idea of being used significantly by God in this world to impact this world for God and for good. I like the idea of God using me in a really significant way to advance His kingdom here on earth. I want my life to be about purpose and about change and about transformation. But to be honest with you, I'm not theologically qualified. I don't have a lot of confidence. I don't have a platform. I don't have a profile. I don't feel like I'm able I don't even have a lot of followers on Instagram. Well, let me tell you, none of that disqualifies you. None of it. God wants to work meaningfully and powerfully and significantly through your life and my life to impact this world for His kingdom. He wants to do something significant through you. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who has rejected you or neglected you if God has selected you. Somebody needs to write that down because that's God's word to your heart today. It doesn't matter. Who has rejected you or neglected you if God has selected you? And so Gideon finds himself in the situation confronted by God. And the angel of the Lord says to him, Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. You're a man of courage. And you are chosen by God to liberate Israel from the Midianites. And I love that because here we are, we are being introduced to perhaps one of the most important lessons to learn from the life of Gideon. It's simply this. That if you are going to be a follower of God, you have to find your identity in God. If you are going to be a follower of God, you have to find your identity in God. By that, I simply mean you have got to trust God to define who you are and decide why you are here. See, I, I grew up in South Africa and I grew up under the apartheid system. And for 20 years of my life, you know, I lived in a world in which we were all separated from one another by race. 
So white people lived over here, and black people lived over here, and colored people lived over here, and Indian people lived over here, and we weren't allowed to mix. We weren't allowed to marry. We weren't allowed to study together. We weren't allowed to interact. It was a really weird world in which to live. And of course, in 1992, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. The ANC came into power, and South Africa transitioned into full democracy. And that whole apartheid system came crashing down, and thank God it did. But you know that one of the most powerful lessons of the apartheid legacy is this. If somebody controls your identity, they ultimately control your destiny. If someone can control and manipulate your identity, they will ultimately control and manipulate your destiny. The point being, if you want God to be in charge of your destiny, you've got to let God determine your identity. Let God be in charge of who you are and why you are here. And the reason why that is important is because from the moment you are born, people are sticking labels on your life. I mean, quite literally. It's one of the very first things that happens when you come out of the womb is they put a label on you. They stick it around your wrist or around your ankle. And usually that little tag has some information about you, like your biological sex and your weight and your height and maybe the time you were born. And, and not long after that, you get a name. And then sometimes within hours, you get a nickname, right? And for the rest of your life, as you journey through this world, people are sticking labels on you, right? Now, the problem with those labels is that they don't always line up with what God sees in you and what God has said about you. But those labels stick. And if they stay long enough on your heart and on your soul, eventually you begin to believe them as though they are true. And sometimes those labels are put there by ourselves, sometimes they're self-imposed, and sometimes they're put there by other people. But if they stick long enough, you are eventually going to believe that they are true. And the kind of labels I'm talking about are things like, well, you are stupid, you are too slow, you are ugly, you are too loud, you are too fat, you are too thin, you are antisocial, you're a loser, you're never going to amount to anything, you're a failure. And it only takes one significant person in your life to stick that label on your soul, and you can carry it with you for the rest of your life. And it can profoundly affect the way that you see yourself. And that's why a big part of the discipleship process, right, the process of becoming a follower of Jesus, is allowing God to peel those labels off of your heart and off of your soul and to replace them with labels that align with how he sees you and what he says about you, right? It's like, have you noticed when celebrities kind of walk the red carpet at, a, at a, an event or a premiere or something, they usually get interviewed. And on the red carpet, they get asked the question, who are you wearing? And so the celebrity might say something like, well, the shoes are Jimmy Choo and the dress is Chanel and uh, the necklace is Swarovski or whatever the case may be, right? And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, who are you wearing? What labels are you wearing? Are you wearing the designer labels that your heavenly father has assigned to your life based on what he says about you and how he sees you? Or are you wearing the labels that have been given to you by your abusive husband or by your neglectful mother or by your narcissistic boss or your psychopathic work colleague? Right? What labels are you allowing to shape your identity 
that do not align with what God has said about you and what God sees in you. And that's why such an important part of the process of following God is learning to trust, learning to trust what He says about you and what He sees in you and allowing Him to put those labels on your life so that you can believe them and walk in the truth of them. And I'm talking there about labels like the fact that you are loved unconditionally and eternally. You are forgiven. You are accepted in the family of God. You are called by God. You are graced by God. You are gifted by God. You are anointed by God. You are appointed by God. You are sent by God. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You have a hope and a future that is full of blessing and full of promise. You have a destiny in God that is full of life, eternal and abundant. Those are the things that God wants you to hold close to your heart. And those are the things that God wants to shape your identity with. And so the first thing that God does with Gideon is he challenges his self-perception. And he says, Gideon, I know you see yourself as the least in your nation, but I see you as the leader of your nation. And he begins to remold and refashion and reform the way Gideon sees himself so that it comes into line with the way God sees him. And you can tell, you know, from the story that Gideon's reluctant about this. He's uncertain about this. And so three times he says to God, God, give me a sign. (laughs) Just give me some confirmation. Just show me something to to settle my heart so that I know that I'm hearing right from you. And God being patient and gracious and merciful does it. Three times he gives Gideon a confirmation, supernatural sign to say, Gideon, you're hearing right. This is me. This is what I want you to do. And so finally, after three confirmations, Gideon says a reluctant, yes. Okay, God, I will do what you're asking me to do. And no sooner has Gideon said yes, then God shows up again to teach him another valuable lesson. So let's pick up the story again, this time in Judges chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 2. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. Are you kidding me? All right, Gideon has just said yes to God, and he's gathered and mobilized the armies of Israel, and they're preparing now to go to battle against the Midianites, and God comes to him and says, Gideon, you have too many warriors. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, they may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. Now, listen, can we just stop for a moment and appreciate the magnitude of what is going on here? Okay, I think sometimes history dilutes the intensity of these stories because we know how the story plays out. We know how the story ends. And so the magnitude and the enormity of what is happening here is lost on us, right? Gideon is already battling with self-doubt. He's already questioning his capacity. He's already wondering if he's able to do what God has called him to do. And then having mobilized the army, God comes to him and says, Gideon, you've got too many soldiers. You need to cut this army down. I want you to tell the men if they're afraid, they can go home. And 22,000 out of the 32,000 say, Gideon, we reckon if we stay with you, we're going to die. So we're going home. (laughs) Talk about a vote of no confidence, right? Now, listen, I'm a pastor. I know what it feels like when just one person leaves the church. Can you imagine when two-thirds of your congregation walk out on you in a single day? I think, gosh, who would want to be a leader in the kingdom of God? Anyway, so just when you think it can't get any worse, God shows up again. And he says to Gideon, Gideon, there are still too many. 
Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Now only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. So the Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. <laughs> Send all the others home. Right, so Gideon's odds have just gone from 5 to 1 to about 500 to 1. All right, they estimate there was about 135,000 soldiers in the Midianite army. And Gideon suddenly finds himself with 300. And Gideon is about to learn perhaps one of the most valuable lessons any of us can learn on this journey of life and faith. And it's this, that if you are going to follow God, you have got to embrace your dependency on God. If you are going to follow God, you have to embrace your dependency on God. Now, I know when I say that, embrace your dependency on God, I know there's something kind of reassuring and comforting about that idea. A life of dependency on God. What could be better and what could be easier? But friends, the truth of the matter is there's actually a lot of discomfort in a life of dependency on God. And that is because God doesn't always work the way we think He should work. God doesn't always do what we think He should do. God doesn't operate according to the same time frames that you and I operate. God is not bound, right, to, to the laws and principles of logic and reason. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that God is against logic and reason. God is the author of logic and reason. And it's precisely because he's the author of these things that he's not bound by them. God transcends them and he can supersede them. And so God doesn't have to operate according to the rational and the reasonable. And very so often, God will require us to do things that at face value to appear to be quite irrational, like cut your army down from 32,000 to 300. It's not a brilliant military strategy, is it? And yet, this is what God requires. And even as I say that, I have to acknowledge, though, that obeying the sovereign, supernatural creator of the universe is always a reasonable thing to do. doesn't matter how irrational the command seems to be. And so God says to Gideon, reduce these men down to 300 and with them go to battle. And nowhere is this lesson about dependency on God more clearly evident than in the battle scene that plays out over the next few days. And this is what happens, to cut a long story short. God says to Gideon, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the 300 men and I want you to spread them out in a circle around the Midianite camp. The Midianites were camped down in the valley. And so God says, take your men, put them in a circle around the camp up in the hills and give each man a torch, which is basically a, flick, uh, a stick with some flaming kind of tar on the end. Give them a clay pot to put over the torch and give each man a trumpet. And when I give the signal, I want you to smash the clay pot, lift up the torch, and I want you to blow on your trumpet. And then I want you to yell real loud. Awesome. Thank you, God. That sounds like a brilliant military strategy, okay? You're going to give every soldier a clay pot, a candlestick, and a trumpet, and we're going to yell at the enemy as loud as we can. Sounds brilliant. All right, I don't know who those 300 men were who stayed with Gideon, but let me tell you, those are the kind of people you want on your team. who <laughs> say, yes, sir, we're going for it, right? And so this is what happens. The, the, the Israelite army surround the Midianite camp up in the hills. They spread themselves out, and when the signal comes, 
Gideon smashes his clay pot and he raises his flaming torch and he blows on his trumpet and all the men around follow and then they yell at the top of their voices, for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Bible says the moment they do that, God sends chaos and confusion into the camp of the Midianites. They become disorientated. They begin to fight each other and to kill one another. And then they begin to scatter. They run from their camp. And so the Israelite soldiers come down from the hills and they chase them and they overcome them, knocking them off one by one as they go. And on that day, Israel is delivered. It's a mighty, spectacular, awesome, supernatural victory over their enemies. Gideon goes into retirement. He writes a book. They turn it into a movie, and everyone lives happily ever after, right? Well, maybe not quite, okay. if only. Fortunately, the reality is that's not quite how the story ends. There is a twist in this plot, and there's a sting in this tale, because no sooner has Gideon learned this incredibly valuable lesson about what God is willing to do through those who express their dependency on him, and no sooner have they seen God do this miraculous work and deliver them from their enemies, than Gideon finds himself given over to the very idolatry that lay at the root of Israel's problem at the beginning of the story. And so Judges chapter, 20, uh, uh, Judges chapter 8 verse 21 tells us that the Israelites said to Gideon, now having destroyed the Midianites and liberated the land, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. Very good, Gideon. Right? That's exactly what is supposed to happen, because that was the problem in the first place, that Israel had removed themselves from the authority of God. They had come out from under God's authority, and they had given their affection and their devotion to foreign gods, to lesser gods, to idols. And so Gideon says, no, the Lord ought to rule over you. However, having said that, in the very next verse, it tells us, Gideon says, however, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. They answered, we'll be glad to. So they spread out a garment, and each one of them threw a gold ring from his plunder onto it. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which is like a, an item of clothing, like a breastplate, which he placed in Oprah near his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Wow, what a tragedy. Having just experienced this powerful, sovereign move of God, this act of divine intervention, having just learned this incredibly valuable lesson of what God is willing to do through those who put their faith and trust and dependency in Him. Gideon finds his own heart falling victim to the very idolatry that tripped Israel up at the beginning of this story. And friends, it's a very sobering reminder to all of us that no matter how powerfully God uses us, all of our hearts are vulnerable. All of our hearts are susceptible to temptation and to distraction. And all of us need to guard our hearts against misplaced affection, against giving our devotion to things that are less deserving than our God. And perhaps the most important lesson of all that we can and should learn from the life of Gideon 
is this third lesson. That if you are going to be a follower of God, you have got to maintain your loyalty to God. If you are going to follow God, then you have to maintain your loyalty to God. You see, friends, the problem in the story was never the Midianites. The problem was Israel's idolatry. It was the fact that they had taken their devotion and their affection, which was reserved for Yahweh, and they had given it to lesser gods. They had given their hearts over to idolatry. And the story is a reminder of what happens to us when we do that. Inevitably, we invite chaos into our lives. Inevitably, we end up impoverished and disempowered, enslaved and oppressed and harassed when we do not give God our hearts and our affection and our devotion. And you see, at the end of the day, this story, although it appears to be a story about Gideon, is actually a story about God. It's a story about the faithfulness of God. It's a story about the patience of God. It's a story about a God who is willing to show His people grace and love and forgiveness in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of their brokenness and their fallenness. This is a story about a God whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is a story about God who loves us for who we are, but sees us for who we are destined to be in Him. This is a story about a God who is willing to forgive over and over again so that His people can have the opportunity to allow Him to rule over them. And this story asks a question of us today, of all of us. And the question is, where does your loyalty lie? Who has the affection and devotion of your heart? Or perhaps to phrase the question another way, does the Lord rule over you? Have you allowed God to be Lord and leader of your life and every part of your life? Or perhaps is there some part of your life that has fallen victim to this human tendency toward idolatry? Have you given affection and devotion to something less than God? Have you reserved a part of your life for yourself? Or is all that you are and all that you have submitted and surrendered to the lordship and leadership of God in your life? Because today, as we reflect on Gideon's story, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present here and He's talking to each and every one of our hearts and He's shining the searchlight of His truth into our hearts and He's confronting us with His truth. But along with that truth is grace. And that grace is the ability to respond and to say, God, this area of my life, this part of who I am, I have allowed to be under my control. And today I want to submit it and surrender it to you. Today is an opportunity for you to say yes, yes to whatever it is that God is calling you to be and to do. Yes to His leadership, yes to His Lordship, yes to His grace, yes to all the good things that God has for you and all the things that He is asking from you. And when you say yes, God does wonderful things in and through your life. Amen. So I'm going to invite you right now to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're going to take a moment to pray together. And as we do, I want to invite you just to open up your heart to the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
who's talking to each and every one of us right now in a really unique way. And just listen to what He might be saying to you, what He might be asking of you. For some of you this morning, I sense the Holy Spirit is going to be whispering words of affirmation and assurance. He wants you to know that you are loved this morning. You are forgiven. You are not what others have said about you. You are not the labels that others have put on you. He loves you as you are. You are called as you are. You are deeply and dearly beloved. And I sense God needs some of you to hear this morning. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are included. For others of you right now, you're sensing God calling you like Gideon to do something you don't feel qualified to do. And I'm encouraging you to just say a courageous yes and to trust God. For others of you right now, the Holy Spirit is asking you to submit and surrender the place of your life to His Lordship and leadership. And Father, I thank You this morning as we sit here in Your presence that You are talking to us and You are working with us and striving with us. And I pray that You give us the grace to hear what You are saying and courage to respond. God, we thank You this morning so much for the gift of Your Word and thank You for the way You speak to us through it. And I pray this morning that You will give us the strength to respond to it so that in and through our lives, God, your purpose might be realized and your will might be done. And this world might know that you are a good, kind, loving, merciful God. Father, I pray as each and every one of us go from this place today into this world and into this week, that you will help us to say yes to all that it is that you're requiring of us. Help us to be faithful witnesses for you and faithful followers of you. And I pray that in and through our lives and our brokenness and our failures and our flaws, that your glory and your goodness might be seen, so that all our world might know that you are God, that you are good, and that you have great intentions for our lives. And we ask all of these things in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus, and everyone who can agree said, amen and amen. God bless you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening and being here today. And if you do need prayer, come on down to the front. Our prayer team will be ready to pray with you. Otherwise, head on out and enjoy one another's company and a cup of tea and coffee. And we'll see you next Sunday. God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.